invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 17. Boy, just a special unction, I think, on the singing of the praises to the Lord this morning. And what excellent songs that we have sung together in honor of the Lord. Acts 17, 1 through 15, the church that troubles the world. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city <coughs> authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They unwittingly said that, but they're right. He is the king. Amen. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, the first thing that struck me about the passage of Scripture is we've been given these narratives over and over of how Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Luke and others went into these areas that did not have a church. Remember, they're churchless. There are no churches in these areas. There is no witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think the focus from Luke for us, Luke is the writer of Acts, is to serve in many ways as a corrective for us. So they serve us as correctives. Why? They help us realign ourselves again and again to the true perspective and our purpose of the church. So as you look at Paul's priorities, as we all look at the early church's priorities, its strategies, its mission, its purpose, you know, we can easily get sidetracked in the church, can't we? And I think these are correctives for us. 
Every time I open up Acts, it's a corrective to my spirit. Not to, to get my focus on something that's unimportant, but to get my focus upon what's most important. And that's the strategies and the priorities and the mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and making an impact in the community that I live in and making an impact in the church of the living God. Incidentally, our purpose is not to win the culture war. I don't like the culture war. I don't like to see, for instance, um, you know, I'm a southern boy, so I don't like to see disrespect to the flag. That, that you know, it makes you a little anxious and makes you think about those, even in my family, who gave their lives for the cause of the freedoms that we enjoy, that kind of thing, it bothers us, and we, we know that. But I, want you, I want, to know, want you to know that it's, that's not our purpose to win that culture war. It is not even to salvage so-called Christian America, which in many ways was never fully Christian. You understand that. If we do this, then we'll be blinded to the true purposes of the church of the Lord God in this world. So our, world, our, our purpose is not to win the culture war. It's not to salvage the vestiges of a Christian heritage. Our purpose is to raise high the bloodstained banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our call is to turn the world upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So every time you see something on TV that just grates against you, understand primarily that the answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not to hate it's not to get so bent out of shape that you can't function. It's to understand that the Lord God is still on the throne. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And what everybody needs to hear in our world is the fact that Jesus Christ is King. And we need to turn the world upside down for Him. So no matter what geographical place our church may find itself in Guatemala or here, wherever we are, the goal is the same. We are called to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Now, when this happens, we will not have a red carpet rolled out for us. The ground very well will be red, and often is, but it won't be because there's a red carpet rolled out for you because you claim to be a Christian. More often than not, again, the, the ground's going to be red, and if we know anything about church history, this has always been the case. So now Paul is entering Thessalonica and Berea. I'm going to sandwich those together for you in our sermon divisions today. We are studying Paul's first missionary journey. Oh, yes. Amen. Somebody's listening. And that journey stretches from Acts 15.36 all the way over to Acts 18.22. Scholars believe that it encapsulates a time frame of A.D. 50 in the spring until A.D. 52 in the spring. So Paul is moving in the direction of what you would call today Europe. Why? Because of the Macedonian call. And aren't you thankful that it moved in that direction so that we would hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that missionary movement is pushing into European area that we would know today. The missionary work in Philippi, we would say, was a huge success. Would you all agree with that? We've, we've, we've read that and we know what took place in Philippi. But here is the missionary band entering Thessalonica bearing the physical marks of having suffered for Jesus. Do you remember what happened to Paul and Silas? 
how they were beaten, placed in stocks, and now they're going in to Thessalonica. Uh, we know that Thessalonica was the largest city in Macedonia. It is a very important city, province-wise. It was located on a very important Roman highway called the Ignatian Way. So very important for commerce. It was founded in 315 B.C. by Cassander, the king of Macedonia. And he named it after his first wife, Thessalonica. How sweet is that? Named it after his first wife. She was the daughter of Philip II of Macedon, who would also have a famous son named Alexander the Great. So by 42 B.C., Thessalonica became a free city. That means it was governed by its own magistrates, and it wasn't under Roman rule. Now, that's something to note. It's interesting. So instead of being under Roman rule, they were free to govern themselves. It was a very religious city, but that doesn't mean they were Christ-centered, for sure. There were enough Jews there to have a synagogue, which there wasn't in Philippi. Remember, Paul goes to the riverbank. Here, he goes back to his ministry strategy, which was to go straight into the Jewish audience and begin to explain how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. What I want to do today is remind you of some church planting strategies and or the priorities that we ought to have at our church and in our community. And everything that Paul says and does in Acts chapter 17, 1 through 15 centers around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel message that we hear here. So the gospel, first, the gospel message requires proclamation. Can we not get that clearly from the passage that Paul goes into Thessalonica and the first thing on his mind is to go into that synagogue and to begin to proclaim. That means you got to open your mouth, right? Try that. It wasn't a ministry of silence. He went straight in to the synagogue And this is something Paul has been doing over and over again. He goes directly into the synagogue. I mentioned to you that he had come from Philippi. If you want to know more about Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and and the people, you need to read the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But listen to what he says to them upon his entrance there. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. I'm in in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. But though we had already suffered... And been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. It's called proclamation. It means he's proclaiming, not to please men, but to please God. Who tests hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is our witness. Aren't you just amazed how Paul can take that kind of beating? I remember uh, flying to Cusco, Peru on a mission trip. And on the final day, Philip spent some time over there in Peru, in Cusco. But on the final day, I was so sick. I mean, had my daughter not been on that plane and others... I would have just said that to that pilot. Are you a believer? If you are, just crash us into that mountain right there and let me just be done. I was literally that sick. And I can't imagine. They took me off the plane and took me to urgent care and hydrated me. I I was a wimp compared to Paul. I mean, think about that. This guy has been beaten, imprisoned, 
unjustly treated. And the first thing he does is, let me just get inside of that synagogue so I can preach the gospel. And he says to those believers in Thessalonica, man, we came to you with a lot of difficulty and suffering and conflict. And he doesn't say when he gets there, well, I need to see the local doctor. He goes straight in and begins to preach the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does so enthusiastically. Listen to the nature of Paul's evangelistic strategy. Did you know what we read? He was there three Sabbaths, reasoning, explaining. Let me, let me just brief you on what it's about. First, it was brief. It was short. Now, this was not totally Paul's doing for sure, right? Revival breaks out in Thessalonica, and he's run out of town because of the gospel. But he was there for three Sabbaths. Doesn't necessarily mean three complete weeks. It could be missing here or there. But here's what we do know. It was less than a month. And when you start reading through Thessalonians 1 and 2, and you think, Paul was just there three weeks or less than a month. And the relationships that he established and what the gospel did there was phenomenal. He will stay in Corinth for 18 months because he didn't get run out of town, right? But here, he's only there for three Sabbaths. When you consider the beachhead set for Christ and all that was accomplished. I was reading through 1 Thessalonians and just think about, he says to them, I treated you like a mother treats her children. I, I led you like a father leads his sons. And you think, man, he was there less than a month and he had that kind of relationship with them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would say to them, I know what manner of entry we had to you that you turned to God from idols to worship the true and living God. Remember, it was in this ministry that he needed not one, but probably two offerings sent to him from the former church. You know, that's the way church work ought to work. Amen? Philippi had a brand new church just a few days old, and they knew that they needed to support the missionary as he went over to Thessalonica. And the amazing thing about that is Paul will cite the church of Philippi in 1 Corinthians as a church that was poor and yet gave out of their poverty. What a lesson for us. But if you just read again Thessalonians and consider he was there less than a month. Paul was willing to spend and be spent for Christ. He took every opportunity, every moment of, the, of that time, less than a month, to pour Christ into them. So it was a brief it's a strategy. We have to think about that. It didn't take long to set it up. Secondly, it was rational. The text says he reasoned with them. And that word in the original means that you discuss and debate and use tactical, strategic arguments. So he's going in to the synagogue and he's striking up conversations about Jesus. I think this kind of... Uh, it's contrary to our belief that most of the time we have to blast people with Jesus and say, turn or burn, repent or perish, heaven or hell. This is a, the motive and the means and the strategy that Paul used was to go in and to reason with them concerning the gospel. Not only was it brief and rational, it was also scriptural. What did he use? The Reader's Digest? Is that what he used? He knew full well that if anybody ever got saved, it would be because of the Word and the Spirit. The Bible tells us that he reasoned from the Scriptures. He was explaining and giving evidence that Christ is the fulfillment and had to suffer. That word explain or explaining comes 
It's the same word used in Luke 24. Do you know the story? Uh, the disciples were moving away from Jerusalem. Jesus had been crucified and he had been resurrected. And it's the first day of the week and they, they bump into who they think. They have no idea who he is, but it's Jesus and he's walking along with them. And the Bible says they could not recognize him. And he began to preach to them from the scriptures that he was the fulfillment of Moses and all the prophets. And they said, did our hearts not burn within us? When he explained the scriptures, that's the same terminology used here. So he appealed to their minds. He reasoned with them. But he did so through the scriptures concerning, listen folks, the truth about Jesus. It is only the truth about Jesus that can save a soul. And so here is what he's doing. It was also a Christ-centered ministry. As he opened the Old Testament scriptures, and let me go ahead and tell you, that's what he opened. There are some preachers out there, even SBC leaders, who are saying, well, maybe the Scriptures doesn't mean Old Testament. They're ignorant. They've missed it. Every time you see the terminology Scripture in the New Testament, it is referring to the Old. And so he's taking the Old Testament, and he's using it to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. Now, in the synagogues, there were set seasons of readings to where you would go in and you would hear a reading that would coincide with the season that you were in. I guarantee you, no matter what passage was set that day to be read in the synagogue, the Apostle Paul could take that passage and point it straight to Jesus. No matter what it was. Let's suppose it was Isaiah 53. I mean, any pastor, any preacher, any teacher that would hear Isaiah 53 in, in 45 A.D. or 50 A.D. and begin to think about how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of it, and that's what he's doing. It's a Christ-centered ministry. But it's also a ministry of the gospel that demands a verdict. He was proclaiming Jesus to them, ladies and gentlemen. He didn't simply give 15 interesting Bible facts in Sunday school. He didn't give moralistic stories to be like a Daniel. What did he do? It is good to be like Daniel. But that's not the, the heart of the text is God, not Daniel. Alright? Here's the deal. What, what, did, what did he proclaim? Well... He continually brought it back to the individual and their relationship with Christ and how important it is. You must believe. Can you imagine if he was preaching and responding on Isaiah 53 that he would remind them that when our sins were laid upon him, this was the Christ. He bore our sins in his body. He, like a lamb, was led to the sacrifice. He bore our sins. He took our place and therefore repent and believe. A verdict was necessary. He applied it to them. You must believe. He was proving his case, preaching to the hearers for a particular verdict. In other words, you've got to repent and believe in Jesus. He was proclaiming the gospel. What about in Berea? Well, that was 50 miles away. And they started off by night. It will take them a little while to get there. The major focus is on again. Paul goes into the synagogue and he begins to proclaim. Isn't it interesting that churches were started through the preaching of the word? Is that how they're always started today? Mm. You're not a church unless you have the word. And that was the emphasis. He goes in and begins to use the scripture. But notice about these Bereans. You know, there are churches around called Berean Baptists. Right, Philip? The, and where does it come from? Well, it comes from this text of Scripture. 
And what was the emphasis upon the proclamation and the reception was just the fact that these were some exemplary Bible students. Uh, the text says that they were no, more noble. What's that mean? Well, it has more of the connotation that they studied it openly. It originally meant to be born or, or high-born, like you were of nobility. But it came generally to be known as someone who was more open and generous and uh, studious. And the, and, and the fact is, their hearts were not hardened, perhaps, like the Thessalonians, but they were more receptive to hear, more noble-minded. In other words, we may use the term humility. And you know, humility is that grace that when you know you've got to show it, you've just lost it. You going to say that again? Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've just lost it, right? And so Paul comes in and he says to them, we didn't come with flattery of speech, we came in... Uh, with straight teaching from the Word of God, with God as our witness. So here they are humbly receiving. So not only did they study it openly, but the text says they studied it eagerly. They were serious. Folks, we ought to yearn for the Word of God here at First Ozark. I mean, here were the Bereans, not yet knowing Christ, and yet here they are, eagerly wanting to hear. Could not get enough of what the Word says. The Bible says we need to yearn, for the pure milk of the Word of God, like a baby yearns for its milk. We need biblical food, not Sunday morning cotton candy and entertainment, funny stories and pithy anecdotes. We need the truth, thus saith the Lord. May God grant us a Berean appetite. That's a new word for you. Don't you use that today when you sit down at Godfather's. I got a Berean appetite. We want that appetite for the Word. So they studied it openly, eagerly, but they also studied it carefully. They had some discernment. Y'all see it there? As Paul preached the Word, they checked it out on their own too. They examined the Scriptures to make sure Paul was saying what the Scripture said in proving that Jesus was the Christ. If you remember, Paul had to rebuke the Galatians for listening to false teachers who sounded good and were flashy and were charismatic, but they were teaching another gospel. Folks, we need some discernment. I mean, folks, look, I grew up around the farm. If you give a cow hay and sticks, he's going to eat the hay and not the sticks. Most Baptists, if you give them whatever you give them, they just gobble it all up and think everything is fine. No, folks, you need some discernment. Check it out from the Word. Just because they're a charismatic leader doesn't mean they're preaching, thus saith the Lord. They had discernment. Number four, they studied the Scriptures daily. That means they did more than just on the Sabbath. They just didn't hear a 35-minute sermon and go home, but they, they spent the week looking at the Word of God. So here we have the Gospel proclaimed. Folks, our church... We cannot be silent when it comes to the gospel. Do you understand how important and strategic it is in the book of Acts? It's always focused back on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We never, ever, ever move away from the gospel. And he's proclaiming the gospel. And we can't be silent about it. Do you all know who Calvin Coolidge was? He was the 30th president of the United States of America. And he was often referred to as silent cow because he said very little in public and in private. Didn't say hardly anything. Smart man, right? 
One day he came home from church and his wife had been sick and she was unable to attend church. And she said to him as he arrived, Calvin, how was it? He said it was fine. How was the preacher? He was good. What did he preach about? Hell. Well, what did he say about hell? He's against it, right? (laughs) Herbert Hoover was Coolidge's successor in the White House. And Hoover invited Coolidge back for a visit and needed some information about the how-tos and the ins and outs of presidency. And he said to Calvin, How was it that you finished your business day right on time during the most difficult time of cultural crisis and political turmoil? And Coolidge said to Hoover, When someone comes to your office, follow this pattern carefully, and I will only say it once. Never blink, never smile, never frown, and never even sigh. It only gives that person encouragement. Right? Wow. One of the most famous society matrons in Washington, D.C. decided that she would have a dinner in Georgetown. And so she obtained the president and the first lady's uh, attendance at that particular dinner. And before President Coolidge arrived, he didn't know this, but the matron had made a wager to all of her people that she could, over the course of an evening, get President Coolidge to say three words. All right? So, in the course of the evening, in the entire evening, Coolidge said not one word. When the presidential entourage was leaving, the matron was so upset and embarrassed that she said to the president, Mr. President, I'm humiliated and embarrassed before my guest. I made a bet that you, you would say a minimum of three words in the course of an evening. And he looked at her hat in hand and said, you lose. <laughs> All right, here's the deal. We cannot be known as silent FBCO. We cannot be known as being silent when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We dare not be silent. We live in an age of accommodationist Christianity. Let's just accommodate it to our personhood. We must not accommodate the gospel to our culture. Are y'all listening? We must not allow the bend, the compromise, or even the slide. We must stand fast on the truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fitz Watson was a homiletic teacher in seminary. He taught preacher boys how to preach. And he said this after years of preaching class, not many of my students look dangerous. That's an awful insight, isn't it? That's a tragic reflection. We certainly ought to look dangerous if we're believers. Not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense for Jesus Christ. We need to believe dangerously. And not let the slide and the accommodationism and the compromise in our world skew our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to preach dangerously. You say, preacher, you got that one down well. Right? We do. We need to preach dangerously. We need to teach and witness dangerously. And some of, I, I, I still understand that some of you look, and let's just be honest, it's in every church, and you say, I'm not so sure we ought to be getting on a plane and flying to Guatemala. Why, why don't we do... Because we want to live dangerously for Christ. It makes a difference in this world around us. God hasn't given us just a commission for here. He's given us a commission to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. And it requires both. 
And so we need to witness dangerously. We need to be willing to board a plane dangerously. Why? Because Jesus Christ is worth it. All right. We got a message to proclaim, don't we? That's the first thing. Number two, the gospel message results in conversion. In Acts 17, I won't read it again, but verse 4 and 12. Here's the idea. It's more than, than they just gave mental assent. Do you notice how they attached themselves to the apostles? They began to follow them. They realized that these emissaries had brought life-giving water to them. They had never heard anything like this before. And when they were persuaded, it meant more than just intellectual assent. It means that they were totally committed. They attached themselves. By the way, when you come to know Jesus, you also come to know the people of God. Right? You do. It doesn't mean just belonging to Jesus, but you belong to a body. They were convinced, not by Paul's eloquence. They were convinced by the exposition of the Scripture. And in writing to his beloved Thessalonian converts shortly after, Paul would say, We know what kind of manner of entry we had to you, that you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. You know, that's a good description of what a believer does when he gets saved. Right? There is a separation from the past. You turned to God from idols. You don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. There's a change in your life. There's a separation from the past. There's also a consecration for the present. To serve the living and true God. That's what you do in the present if you know Jesus. And there's something in the future as well. You know Jesus Christ is coming back. And Paul said to them, we see all this in you. When God opens your heart, he not only opens you up to say, he's my God, but these are also my people. And many who joined were God-fearing Gentiles. What does that mean? That means they were not Jewish proselytes because that means you took circumcision. So God-fearer meant they were believing in the God of the Old Testament minus circumcision. Okay, that's the people. And they were saved. And then there were women of high standing that were saved. Man, that must have been a revival. Amen? Well, I mean, twice the emphasis in Berean believers and in Thessalonica were women of high standing. Now, in Jewish culture, this was not the case. They were often mistreated, and we know that. But in Greek culture, they actually held places of high esteem. And most scholars believe that these were probably women in the synagogue that were more priestesses. And they had that particular function in those synagogues. And many of those women, in other words, wealthy women, were coming to Jesus. That's awesome. That's conversion, right? Gospel preaching results in conversion. There were people who trusted Christ and were gloriously saved in Berea and in Thessalonica. Now, all looks well, doesn't it? Can you, can you see Paul sitting by the fire with Silas? Maybe Silas is strumming on the guitar. And they're just singing. And Paul says, I know, Silas, you, you like the new praise courses that you wrote out of Psalm 8. But would you sing one of them old hymns? Because I know some of you older Baptists were there and you were like, I don't, let's sing one of these new hymns. Let's quit singing the new hymns, sing the old. I'm just joking with y'all. I thought that would be a good time to say something like that. But look, <laughs> but they are having, I mean, just think. I mean, awesome revival in Thessalonica. Campfire time, baby. Let's praise the Lord. 
Persecution was just around the corner. How about in Berea? I mean, glorious revival. Things are awesome. And the Thessalonican same group comes down there after them for 50 miles. Which leads to the third thing. Not only is the gospel message a message of proclamation. We must preach it. We also know that it results in conversion. But finally, the gospel message raises opposition. Doesn't it? And if you read 5 through 9 and 13 again, I won't read them. But you'll understand that the Jews were jealous. Perhaps it was because of those leading women who were not coming to synagogue. Can you imagine the synagogue leaders walking by Jason's home? And people are literally hanging out the windows. Screaming and hollering and praising Jesus. And people are getting saved. And all the leading women of the synagogue are now over there at Jason's house serving Christ. And the synagogue revenue is down. Everybody's going to Jason's home, and nobody's in the synagogue, and they're jealous, and they're upset about this. These interlopers have come in and stolen our sheep, right? And they're upset, and they're jealous. And the Bible says that these disgruntled Jews recruited some thugs, and that's the real word, to stimulate a public outrage against Paul and Silas. F.F. Bruce says they just went out and rented a mob. They went down to the Agora, and you know there was commerce at the Agora. There's also conversation at the Agora, marketplace, but there's also crime at the marketplace. No different from Ozark, right? Or wherever you are, here, here these men are. And who would not take five bucks to go down to the, to, the, to the marketplace and agitate somebody talking about Jesus? And so basically, F.F. Bruce is right. These guys had some misplaced zeal, and they recruited a mob. Our text calls them wicked men, but the KJV says vile fellows of a baser sort. Isn't that awesome? A.T. Robertson just said bums. I like that translation. They go down and they get these people using mob psychology. They gather them together and they get a crowd. They storm Jason's house and they're looking for Paul and Silas, but instead they pull out Jason and others. And what the terminology means, they're brought before a free city. Y'all remember that? So they don't have to answer to Rome. They bring them right into the Agora, and they're putting them on trial. And what they really want to do is lynch them. That's their goal. And so they grab these brand new believers, throw them out there in front of the authorities. And the ending result was they're defying Caesar. This sounds exactly what they said, like what they said about Jesus, right? This is exactly why they crucified him for treason, saying that he's a king. Right? Pilate says to him, are you a king? And you know, Jesus, in his incredible understanding of everything about Pilate, answers that question in not the clearest of terms, but he knew full well. Pilate knew full well that Jesus Christ was claiming to be king, and he did. And so before these authorities, that's what they're saying. Remember, Claudius had expelled the Jews. Don't let any of them come in to your area. And they were piggybacking off that. They were strategic in their efforts to have Paul and Silas killed and the others. So, here's the incredible thing about it. In all of this upheaval, they say these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Again, they unwittingly said this, but what an awesome compliment. That the men that are turning the world upside down for Jesus have also come here. Could that be said and would that be said of FBCO? That we're causing concentric circles of trouble in the world because of Jesus. Could it be said of our church that we're making an impact in our world and we're upsetting the world because of the king 
that we belong to. The kingship of Christ was seen to be a major threat for Pax Romana. What's that mean? Roman peace. And the same is true in the United States of America. Jesus is, if he's king and he's coming back, that kind of upsets people. But I tell you now, he is king. And he is coming back. And so it does upset people. Note in the midst of the uproar, uproar, again, unwittingly paying an awesome compliment. These men who have upset the world. We want the world, folks, to know that Jesus Christ is king. Actually, they were the only ones, Paul and Silas and others, that were right side up in this world. You ever thought about that? Paul and Silas were actually setting it right. We live actually right side up in a topsy-turvy world. You do know that, don't you? If you know the king, you're the, really, you're, the, you're the one that lives right side up. The rest of the world is upside down, needing the king. So after they attained security, which means that Jason probably had to pay some money, they let him go, and based upon letting him go, they said, we don't want any more problems. Paul is not taking part in cowardice by being hid, is he? Even being sent off to Berea by night. This is wisdom and prudence. The gospel had already been preached in Thessalonica, and he was going down to Berea to preach the gospel there too. In other words, Paul thought it more necessary to spend one more day alive to preach Jesus than be dead and not preach him. Okay? So this is not cowardice. I know Paul believed in the sovereignty of God, and God delivered Paul every single time he needed to deliver Paul in order for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And I have that confidence that God's going to take me out when I'm done. I believe I'm invincible until I finish the work God has called me to do on this earth. And then at that time, God's going to take me on to glory. I believe, if you're seeking His will, that you are as well. Now, the, the, the length of your life may be shorter, but that doesn't mean that God didn't use it for a purpose if you're a believer. We don't, we don't know and we can't explain. But when you're, the pot, when you're the pot and he's the potter and he's forming you, then he's got power over the clay. Right? And so here is Paul knowing sometimes you stand up, but other times you get on the bus and you go somewhere else so that you can live to preach another day. It was also true in Berea. The truth of the gospel was the source of the trouble. Folks, can you see this? Can you see this clear in our world? That the source of the trouble when it comes to Christians is the people who are willing to speak the truth according to the gospel. Y'all getting this? Folks, that's where the trouble is in this world. The trouble for believers is when we say that Jesus Christ is the only way. When we say that He is the supreme and only final sacrifice for our sins. That doesn't sit well with the world. But folks, we don't shrink back from that because of that. We speak and proclaim the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an accommodating message. Do you think it was accommodating to the Jews when Jesus said it was a rock of stumbling? The cross has been for you, and you crucified the Lord of glory. Don't you all think that was pretty radical? Well, the fact of the matter is, it's not an accommodating message. It demands death. To be saved even demands death on your part. You die to self. And you become alive in Christ. In Paul's day, they could not shut them up no matter what they did. They fearlessly proclaimed the truth. Incited a mob against them. And today we are so terror struck at the thought that non-Christians might not like the unvarnished truth. That you just can't stand the fact that that non-believers don't really want you around. Sometimes we think, oh, the lost folks really like having us around as Christians. 
What did Jesus say about that? Jesus said in John 3.13, Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Jesus said, The world hates me because I testify of its works that they are evil. John 7.7. If you read John 15.18, Jesus said, Persecution is coming. The world has hated me. And if you live for me, the world will hate you. If you bring the gospel, the world will hate you. So Paul never tried to win the world through intellectual acceptance, personal popularity, image, status, reputation, or all those things. That's not the way he sought to win the world. He even said, we've become the outscouring of the world. In other words, the world looks at us as filth. And Paul knew that. We have no latitude to soft-pedal the gospel. We don't need to incorporate here at FBCO a strategy to soft-pedal the gospel. Soft-pedal the offense of the cross, folks. We dare not attempt to give more sophisticated approaches to the gospel so as to accommodate a contemporary society. We have to stick to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must do this. We may encounter evil actions, just like they did. We may even encounter false accusations, like they did. But all the godly men that have gone before us have paid the same price. Why shouldn't we? It's true. In conclusion, we need to come to grips with the fact that we live in a world that hates Christ and the gospel. If you narrow it down, it's the truth. Even if you live a peaceful, humble, yet bold existence for Jesus Christ, you're going to get opposition. And you're going to get persecution in increasing ways. I don't care who the president is. It's going to get worse, folks. The Bible tells us so. A life of submission to Jesus Christ as King is a revolutionary life. If you live your days with Jesus as the King of your life, it is revolutionary. It is going to cause trouble in this world. And our revolution, of course, is not a revolution of blood. But it does turn the world upside down. Right? When you live it. Even in your workplace. The kind of conversations that you have with people can turn that area of status quo uh, in people's lives to understand that everything may not be the way I think it is when you begin to say something in conversation. And if you live in submission to Christ as King, and you live a peaceful, humble, yet obedient life to Jesus Christ, and you boldly proclaim the gospel, your message will be a provocation to this world. You know it's true, don't you? And that's why it's so easy to be silent. Silent cow, right? You know it's going to be a provocation. You know it's going to be difficult for the person to hear what you have to say. We need to be willing to turn the world upside down for Christ. We need to upset the world for Christ. That doesn't mean you're mean-spirited. That means you're loyal to the king. It means you're loyal to Jesus. It may cost you more in the future than it does now. There are believers arrested every single day in other countries for opening their mouth and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is King. Y'all do know that, don't you? It happens every single day all over the world. And again, it's going to get more and more difficult here in our country no matter who the President of the United States is. So you know what we need to do? Let's just get busy now doing it. Don't wait till tomorrow and see what's going to happen in the future. Why don't we commit today in our circle of influence to begin to speak and proclaim and allow God to work through the proclamation of the gospel. Go ahead and draw the line in the sand today, not tomorrow. May it be our passion as our church to proclaim the message of Christ crucified and resurrected. To proclaim that He is King 
And to seek out the ones that our God is seeking out in a rescue effort. I guarantee you this, it'll be worth it when you stand before Jesus. He is the king, right? (sighs) Father, help us. God, help me. Lord, we get so sidetracked. That's one great thing about the perspectives class that our people are going through. It helps us to stop, to breathe, and to get our focus on the Scriptures and what our perspective really should be. God, help us as a church. Lord, give me a shepherd's heart. Everybody can't arrive at the same place at the same time. But I thank you so much for speaking truth to us. Lord, we open up the Word, and you are so faithful through your Word. It will not return void. And Father, every time we open the Word, and we read it, and we preach it faithfully, then you are speaking to your people through your Word. God, help us. God, help us to be radically oriented in proclaiming the message of the gospel. The only message that can save sinners. God, there's going to be conversions. God, you've promised that you're going to save souls. Lord, help us to be faithful to the message. Father, help us see conversion. We pray that you, the Lord of the harvest, will thrust forth laborers. It's widened to harvest. And Father, I know it's going to raise opposition, but help us have courage. Help us have courage and understand that through millenniums, People have suffered for your cause. It's only recently that a country like the U.S. could exist with no persecution. That's fastly changing. We know that. God, help us to be willing to bear the cross for Christ. To identify with you in your life, death, burial, and resurrection. And to proclaim that you, Lord Jesus, are our King. You're the King of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.